What's up, guys? JD here. And on today's show, I am talking to Neil Hatangadi, CEO at Cortica. I got to tell you guys, this is an amazing episode and Neil is such an impressive guy. Cortica is breaking new ground in the world of autism care and autism treatment. And the story of how he founded this company is mind-blowing. This is a guy who has a background at Harvard, wanted to be a physician, ended up going to McKinsey, then from there worked on Wall Street under some of the best hedge fund managers in the world, Stephen Cohen and Ken Griffin. And then from there, he worked at a few companies, at a few health tech startups, and then founded his own company, Cortica, and how he did it. Again, you guys are going to absolutely love this story. That's coming up in just a second. If you like what you hear, if you're getting value from it, you know what I'm going to ask. I'm asking you to subscribe, leave a rating, a review, tell your friends, and let me know what you think. You can get me at johndavids.com and across social, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. I'm there. And here is Neil Hattengadi. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. I went back on your LinkedIn, sort of to the beginning, and First, you are an academic, and then you're a McKinsey management consultant, and then you're a Wall Street guy, and, and now you're running a company or CEO. So give us your background. How did you get into this? And what was your path? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. I you know, really wanted to be a physician as a kid. Neither of my parents were physicians. So it was very intriguing to me, just the idea of practicing medicine, love the idea of being a surgeon, more just conceptually than anything else. And so that was my path, kind of through high school, college. And then after college, I, I was admitted to medical school, but took a couple years away to the graduate program at Oxford. And during that time, sort of work, was exposed to business, which I hadn't really thought about, but was intrigued with the idea of not just practicing medicine, but thinking about medicine on a larger scale through innovation, technology, systems, business building. And so spent time at sort of various companies did go to medical school, but during summers, spent time at in consulting and pharma. And by the time I, I finished medical school, realized that I may be more interested in in sort of the, the company and innovation side than the direct practice of, of medical care. And so the easiest path for, for me there was not to do business school. I was kind of tired of school at that point, but went to McKinsey as a way to use that healthcare background and learn business skills on the job. And I knew I didn't want to be a consultant forever. And so an opportunity came to join one of my clients that was in the cardiovascular field. And it was a great opportunity to kind of take my, my background in clinical practice and um, clinical training and combine that with my interests in, in business building, technology, innovation. And at that point, was pretty hooked on operating roles. And so loved small companies really went after companies that were solving a big clinical unmet need. So thinking about something in the medical world that was a big patient problem, wasn't adequately addressed with today's technologies and innovation, and went after it really, really hard with great teams, great science, great work ethic, and you know, did that essentially three times before then coming to Cortica. And spent a little time in between as a Wall Street investor 
which was a kind of slightly different path. Just a little time working for some uh, firms like Citadel and uh, and others. So, okay, let, let's let's go back before we uh, go too far here. So, you spent two years at McKinsey. I've got friends that kind of went the consulting route and uh, and or the investment banking route, and and there's good and there's bad there. What did you learn doing like in two years at McKinsey? I'd imagine as an outsider, that would must be like phenomenal education. What did you take away from that? And, and was it good or, or was it something that you maybe wouldn't do again? No, it was amazing. I absolutely would do it again. Those were really my transition years from being a, a physician and scientist to being able to work in the business world. I mean, had I not done that, I think it would have been a very difficult move for me anyway, from medicine to, to the corporate and startup world. So it essentially was a project every two to three months. So over the course of, of two years, nearly 10 projects and engagements and across a variety of sectors. So for me, I knew I wanted to do healthcare, but I wasn't sure where in healthcare. And so I did biotech, medical devices. I worked with health plans. I worked with academic medical centers and did many of those multiple times in different kinds of projects for, for each one. Sometimes it would be a strategy project or a growth project or two companies just merged and how do you integrate them together? And so the opportunity to kind of do all those real live business cases with great teams. And they invest a lot in training. So before I was even in front of a client, I spent a month doing a, a mini MBA program. I've never gone to business school, but this was the kind of most training that I got. And the resources, the, the size of, of that organization, the influence they have, the clients they work with, all just made it a, a really, really strong experience. But I think, you know, for many people who join like me, it's a it's a path to somewhere. It's not the destination. And I knew that and I sort of kept my eyes open to when a client would come along that I found so compelling. I'd rather be on that side of the table than than continuing to be a consultant. And would you say that the evolution to why, why don't you tell me what was the evolution and what was the experience like working in uh, in private equity? Yeah, so I worked at a couple hedge funds. So I exited my first company and had a friend who was also a physician who was on Wall Street doing hedge fund public market investing. Give me a call and say, "Hey, there are more and more doctors here on Wall Street using their clinical talents to do investing." And I was intrigued by the idea. I've, I've historically not been a huge like stock market guy. Again, as, like as a kid, my interest was really about being a, a physician, being a surgeon. And so I wasn't someone who kept track of the markets on a daily basis. So it was pretty new to me. But as I dug into it, I realized that there's a lot of market cap, a lot of companies that move based on clinical data. And their financial statements matter a lot less than are they designing the right drugs and devices? Are they running the right trials? Is there real clinical unmet need for it? Will it get adopted on the other side of, of regulatory approval, which really pulled from my, my clinical training. And so I spent almost four years there across two firms. I was at SAC Capital and then went to Citadel, both in New York, and really was slotted into roles where, again, it was just about my clinical training, using that to make decisions about whether companies were, were going to be successful in a variety of spaces. So medical technology, diagnostics, some drug studies, some healthcare providers. But it was very interesting just not for me long term. I knew that I ultimately wanted to be back in building companies as opposed to investing from the sidelines. So two very prominent folks there. There's Stephen Cohen and Ken Griffin. 
who run those firms. Anything you can say just for a minute or two about the actual... Those are two incredibly successful and you know, in some cases, notorious firms. Anything that you learned there that you sort of took away and said, I can see why these firms are the way they are? Yes. Relentless pursuit of excellence at both places. There is no acceptance of mediocrity. And I, I have, I've appreciated that throughout various institutions I've been at. So when I was in medical school, spent a lot of time at Mass General Hospital. I felt like that was a place there too, no matter how good one thought they were. There was just a higher bar to be met and people were phenomenal. At SAC and, and Citadel both, the bar for excellence was extremely high. Both Steve Cohen and Ken Griffin are visionary. They have massive, massive aspirations for what they've wanted to build. It's been that way ever since they've been young. I think they think a little bit differently about talent development. At SAC, it was more about let's go find the best people we can on the front end. And if they're not working out, there's a fair bit of, of turnover in, in pursuit of giving the right people a shot. And when it's not working out, sort of trade them out. At Citadel, I felt like there was a lot of business building. I mean, it was a desire to really build. And I think that's come to fruition in the time since I've left. Build a phenomenal, very large institution that competes against the biggest banks in the world. So I've I've taken essentially two sets of takeaways from that experience. I mean, one is about when you're building a company, what do investors look for, having spent time, a lot of time with sophisticated investors? And another is to your point. How do world-class companies get built by individuals who just have an incredible vision, huge aspirations, and an incredibly high bar for quality? Yeah, I can only imagine. And you're surrounded at that point with the brightest people in the world. And so it must sort of just create a culture of getting better and better every single day. Yeah, that's right. And you know, the challenge with that sometimes is like, I mean, the ideal for me, and this is something I didn't experience quite as much there, but knew I did want was the ideal is you're surrounded by incredibly talented, excellent people who want to make each other better. And that's not so much the philosophy at, at some of these hedge funds that have multiple pools of capital. It's, it's more competitive. It's sort of designed where you take pods of teams and within a team, you're, we're incredibly collaborative. So I worked with anywhere from three to five guys in my investment pod. But one pod to another was typically encouraged not to be collaborative and collegial by intent because the overall fund wants multiple bets and they can then figure out which ones they think are, are realizing the most value. But what it made me realize is that I really wanted to be part of a, a team where people were amazing, but all pulling for each other so that everyone got better together. Yeah. So let's fast forward to Cortica. How did you get into this company? So I'd been at three prior healthcare startups and all had gone through the process of either going public or transacting and sometimes both. And they were in areas of healthcare that I knew better and, and more traditional, like cardiovascular disease and ear, nose, and throat. And behavioral health, and especially pediatric behavioral health, was something new to me. When I transacted my last company in, in ENT, I was looking for my next, my next thing and was thinking about companies in robotics and genetics and cardiovascular disease, which to me were kind of areas of healthcare I knew better. And I actually spent time with my wife. So this is the sort of irony of, of how Cortica started. It's really my, my wife's private practice. We met in medical school. She had very different interests than mine. 
I was interested in entrepreneurship and finance and building companies. And she was very interested in understanding developing child's brain and how could that process of, of developing typically be affected by various conditions. And when you saw challenges like autism and ADHD and speech delay and, and other conditions, how could we help those kids or how could she help those kids and families live their best lives? And so she had a small private practice when we had moved out from New York to San Diego, it was seeing you know, a few dozen patients. And I saw an opportunity to take what she was doing and convert that to really a global business. That when I looked at so many areas of healthcare, nothing rose to the level of unmet need, clinical unmet need as autism. It was a condition that was rapidly growing in prevalence. It was one in 10,000 in 1970. Now it's nearly one in 40. The families who have kids with a condition often struggle getting all the resources they need. It's a very fragmented journey. The science is very much in its infancy compared to other areas of healthcare. So there's really this opportunity to build a company that, like other companies I've been at, just demanded excellence, brought together incredible teams, and revolutionized the standard of care for something that really needed it. So you're the founder of Cortica. Yes. Yes. Okay. A co-founder co yeah. alongside. I, I, I figured it, it wasn't on the yeah. LinkedIn. So, yeah. so you started this company. Okay. So the initial tidbit is you see the need. What's kind of what's the zero to one there? How do you start something that you know? Because today it looks like a massive, very impressive business. What did the zero to one version look like? Yeah. So the initial version was hiring those first set of clinicians at a single center. So we had to secure the space. We had to hire uh, our first multidisciplinary team. So our whole approach to autism care is a family should be able to have a one-stop shop for everything they need. And so we had to distill that down to about a dozen different clinician types. So we have pediatric neurologists, pediatricians, nurse practitioners. We have behavioral therapists, master's level, bachelor's level. We've got speech therapists, occupational therapists, social workers, marriage family therapists. So we knew we had to assemble this team that could work together. And it was bootstrapped in the sense that my experience with companies is as you're getting them off the ground, and unless you have a phenomenal reputation, it's difficult to get funding right away. And you know, I was just really, really committed to this idea. And so initially, it was us hiring this group of clinicians at a single location and and then identifying patients who who want this type of care the early signals from from a customer standpoint were incredibly favorable i mean i did some market research in the field went out and talked to about 50 families affected by the condition and i'd say 49 of them said yes if you build this this is where i would want to take my child I just, to, wanna, I just want to understand it. So the initial, the MVP version of this is a physical clinic, a physical place where you go and there's multiple services that somebody who has a child with autism would require. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and, and that didn't exist? Yeah, it seems hard to believe. Uh, the, uh, there are academic centers who do some of this but limited in how many of the different specialties to, they bring together. Also, they're limited in the wait list uh, in terms of how many patients they can see. And it's often a six to 18 month time lag. 
And academic centers tend to be very focused on the initial like upfront evaluations, getting diagnoses done, and then long-term care is typically that burden is put back on families to go get on in the community. The community providers tend to be very siloed. So there's a group that will do behavior, a group that does speech therapy, a group they'll do occupational therapy or counseling, a lot are individual providers. And your point actually is an important one. Like as I looked at it, I was shocked too that something as basic as this idea of a interdisciplinary care model where all these groups come together and work together. The fact that it didn't exist is is in many ways like mind blowing. Yeah. Well, because I'm just thinking like, I, this is a whole different example, but like the place I go for massages also does facials and they do, you know, like other kinds of therapies that are related to that. It just seems like such, like such a straightforward model, but you found that need and you you said, well, you know, this should all just be simple and in one place and built to serve the customer, not to make it a pain in the butt for the customer to get the service. Yeah, that's exactly right. And even in healthcare, almost all of established fields of medicine are integrated multidisciplinary. So oncology is a great example. You know, when when someone gets diagnosed with a cancer, there's a single place you can typically go to get an imaging study, you can get a genetic workup. And then from there, it's the medical components, radiation, surgery, diet, psychiatry are all typically integrated. So it's not rocket science. But the fact that this didn't exist is in many ways a tragedy, but also represented like I mean, those are often, I feel like, how, how compelling businesses emerge. It's like, it's such a no-brainer and you got to really ask yourself, why doesn't this exist? Yeah. And well, we then realized why in the process of building it, which is that these different groups typically don't work together in an integrated way. They don't speak the same language. So the typical process is a physician will do their workup, which includes imaging studies, genetic studies, lab tests, physical exam. EEGs, all, all sorts of things. And then when they decide that they've got a diagnosis, they'll then refer to other providers, behavioral therapists, speech therapists. They don't often sit in the same room with them and talk about our collective patient, Johnny, this is what's going on. What do you think? There just isn't that built into the way they're trained or the way they even think about the condition. A physician thinks very medically, a behavioralist thinks really about how can I influence a child's behaviors, reinforcing the good ones, disincentivizing the bad ones? A speech therapist thinks exclusively about communication. So they're intrinsically siloed. And that was a tough part of the MVP was how do you get a team of different individuals with different trainings to really work together as a team? You know, like a football team where you've got linemen that are really focused on being strong and running short distances, you could do a receiver and a core. Everyone's doing something quite different, but when they work together, it's an incredibly powerful thing. And th that took us years actually to really get right. So how did you, at the early stages, how did you pay for all this? You, you said you bootstrapped it. I'm guessing you had some money from your previous jobs, but were you sort of putting it all on the line or did you have a smart financing idea for this? No, I, I put it all on the line. I felt like it was such a no-brainer around the, the need for it. And the customer feedback, and often when I've done healthcare startups before, I always start with market research and ask the ultimate users, would you use it or not? And I'm happy when 50 or 60% say yes. You know, in this case, it was 95% plus. And so the fit with the market was incredibly strong. It was in many ways just so obvious that this was needed. We have the benefit of being that MVP was a revenue generating entity. So it was not pure 
kind of product development. We secured insurance contracts with health plans and were you know, able to, to generate revenue. The intent was not to be profitable. The intent was to, you know, any revenues that were, were received were used to pay salaries and keep expanding the business. But for the first couple of years, it was sort of limited growth, limited investment, because we just had a, only a certain pool of capital we could use. Though the interest from outside investors came much faster and completely unsolicited than I expected. That's the best. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the first round actually came from patients we worked with. So we. I, so yeah. b- before we get that, I got two sure. questions. I, I'm yeah. so curious to hear this. If you can share the number, how much did you actually put in before you were able to run off the sustaining profit of the business? Yeah, we put in over a million dollars. Wow. Okay. So it was a serious uh, investment. Yeah, it was a serious investment. We put in over a million dollars because of the conviction that this was worth doing right and not not going out to investors early, we would see a lot of the vision. And I think that that's a, a lesson I would pass on to other entrepreneurs who are thinking about whether it's worth bootstrapping your business for a while. And I think that from my perspective, it really was in the sense that we got to a scale where we were large enough and minimum viable product was truly a viable product before we sought outside capital. And I think that helped because if in some cases, those early investors have quite a large voice in where the product can go. And there are lots of unanswered questions. And it was nice for us to essentially de-risk that model prior to going out. Were you ever tempted in that period because you had such a good growing, just normal business to just keep growing organically? Or I guess at some point you had such investor interests from both patients and institutions that you thought, I've got to go bigger here. Yeah, the pace just... I think if I hadn't had prior corporate experiences, it would have been okay. But the pace of growth doing it organically just wasn't interesting enough for me. Like We needed to set up multiple centers. Our centers are large. They're 10,000 square feet. They employ at maturity over 100 clinicians. So the working capital that goes into each one is, is pretty significant. We needed to develop our own technology platform. And that that I knew that I just couldn't bite off when we were bootstrapping it. Like we had a little bit of technical development. I, I needed to bring on a, a real CTO and have him build out a, a great tech team. I wouldn't have been able to do that with just organic growth. And I just felt like life was too short to in my, in my particular instance to to try and own, you know, hundred percent of a pretty small thing that would take a while to grow. I preferred to bring smart people around the table and own a lot less of, of, of something that was really big and really impactful. Absolutely. So what was that first round? You, you said it was, it was a patient round. Yeah, it was a seed round that came about from patients that we were serving in, in Southern California. And they were interested in in the model. And, and several of them were entrepreneurs and CEOs and thought that Hey, rather than have this model get in the hands of investors right away, we'd love to see you grow and expand. So we put together our first $5 million round, so bigger than I expected, honestly, from largely uh, a set of patients we served. Friends and family came in too, who appreciated the idea, had conviction in it. And that really took us from just operating on fumes and that limited pool of capital we had to, to something more significant. And what year was that in? 
That was 2018. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal. I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I've put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavids.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. So 2018, and then what was the growth from 2018 to the next funding round? So what was interesting there is within 6 months of that seed round, we had our first institutional group come forward and offer us a, a Series A to really go a lot faster. And so that happened by the end of that year. So it was like in February 2018, we did our seed. And by November of 2018, we had done our Series A. And the growth in between was we went from probably 50 employees to about 150 employees. We went from one center in San Diego and added a second center in Orange County and started to, to build those up. We started to invest more in our technology platform so that we could operate at scale and started to build the systems that we knew we would need to be at scale. And that that's one of those things like when you bootstrap a company, you're you're really thinking day to day, like how do I get through today? How do I get through this week? Whereas with external capital at that point, we were building systems anticipating that in a couple years we were going to be over a thousand employees. And so how do you build talent acquisition systems sort of to recruit as many of those folks, HR systems, electronic medical record systems for clinical quality and clinical excellence, insurance billing, all that stuff, that infrastructure we needed to build, that was where the priority was. And it was honestly kind of, I think about it as sort of like an iceberg, a lot of it being built below the surface of the water. And once it's built, then you can really explode. So in most of 2018, even 2019, there was not a ton of growth. It was just systems building. And then later, it, it really took off. Did a lot of those things already exist? Because I'd imagine, couldn't you just take from the medical world already? Or do you have to build stuff custom? Wherever we could, we would pull the off-the-shelf solutions. So what we invested in was interfaces, essentially. So we couldn't have a single electronic medical record because we have physicians who are doing fairly complicated coding and record management. So they've got labs, they're writing prescriptions, they've got MRI studies. So they've got a pretty sophisticated electronic medical record. Then on the behavioral side, it's kind of the opposite. We send clinicians into patients' homes. They're collecting data as part of their sessions. They're not coding. They're actually timestamping their encounters. It's very different. Physicians typically don't timestamp when their sessions are out. So that's an example if we had like two totally different medical record systems, we had to create an interface so those two could talk together. And then the same thing when we pulled an off-the-shelf recruiting system, an onboarding system, apparel, we've really spent time building kind of a seamless software package or tech stack on top of all of those things. Yeah, it sounds like it. So we're at the end of 2018. You've got, I think, two centers now and you've raised another round. So what did growth look like at that point? We really stayed at two centers for a while while we figured out the model. And so it was the first time we were... It was MVP times two, essentially, but times five in complexity. Because 
I was no longer there all the time at both places. It just was not possible, nor was our clinical founder. And so a lot of SOPs essentially had to be built and not just like writing them down in documents because that's almost irrelevant. It's more, how do you create an ethos of high quality clinical care, of great customer service, meeting all the standards that, that we wanted. And that took us a good 12 to 18 months. And then once we got that, plus all the systems that we were talking about, that's when we, we really started to experience more, more viral growth. Yeah. So I'm looking right now at your website. I mean, Burlington, Carlsbad, East Bay, Glendale, like you guys have a lot of locations here. So were you growing? It seems like you were growing really through COVID. You, you, you expanded a lot over those years. Is that, is that what happened? That's what happened. Ironically, I mean, it was pre-COVID, despite not having the pandemic, we were just focused on getting the building blocks right. And I'm, I'm glad we did because I've heard of companies that overreach on these. Like If you don't have the systems ready for scale and you start to expand, then the quality drops off. Maybe the thing I'm most proud about our growth is that as we've expanded, the quality has actually gotten better. And each new center we open, we collect net promoter scores, and they're as high or higher than our prior centers. We have an NPS typically around 85 or 90 very consistently, which in healthcare is exceedingly high. And so we grew a lot through COVID because we also pivoted to telehealth and more in-home care. So we have centers around the country. And what the pandemic forced us to do was really think about how do we use telehealth as a way to reach our patients during the pandemic where coming to centers wasn't an option. And then we did more and more in-home care, which was sending our therapists into the home. And those interactions, those continued during COVID because you weren't bringing large groups together where there was risk of transmission from one child to another and having that many people like clustered together. So we went during COVID from a largely center-based model, say 90% of our care in center to at the bottom, the peak of the COVID, the bottom of our sort of center-based services, we were about 10% center-based. The rest was home and telehealth. Now we've flatlined to about half and half. So about half of our care exists in custom-built 10,000 square foot centers. The other half is a combination of, of telehealth care and home-based care, which has been much more scalable, not being dependent on a, on a physical footprint. That sounds immensely more scalable. Can you continue to build the company and make that a bigger and bigger chunk of your service? I think we found the right balance. So there's some areas of healthcare that are trying to go exclusively virtual. Ours is an area where you really need, for kids with autism, you need to be with them face-to-face. And you're working on skills of socialization and communication and, and doing that in front of a screen has limits. The home-based model is a, is a really solid one. So you can be virtual, you can send clinicians into the patient's home, but there are some limits around which types of clinicians can go in. So it's hard to get a physician to go home to home to home. And the value of a center is it's very structured. So for kids who are working on regulating themselves and also social environments where they're wanting to interact with other kids their age, nothing beats a center around being able to have the most structured environment. And so we've really evolved our model to be what we call omni-channel, which is we have these centers, we have home and school and community-based care, we send our clinicians out, and then we have a telehealth component. And I think we found the right blend that's made it very scalable. So 
I think in our condition, it's difficult to transition exclusively to a virtual model, but this blend is the right balance for us. And we found a, now a, a pathway to essentially almost one every month or other month around the country, each at about 10,000 square feet, we're, we're able to launch. So as I look at this business and you're talking about it here, I'm thinking there's like, it's almost like three businesses. So you've got this brick and mortar thing you got to worry about. You've got a technology stack that you're building and maintaining. And then you've got an actual medical practice with hundreds and hundreds of medical professionals that, that are doing the work day to day. How do you run this? I mean, I'm, there's a team and I want to talk about your team in a minute, but what are you focusing on here? Yeah, it's a great question. Over time, the operations have been passed on to people who are honestly better operators than, than me having come from this world. Like I was very much about medical technology and innovation in my prior roles. I was less about running large healthcare service organizations. So we're now over 1,300 employees and have been really fortunate that we've brought on people who know how to run hospitals, outpatient centers, behavioral health companies. They've come from great ones in our field. So I focused a lot in the early days on recruiting talent. That was a, a huge, huge focus. And not everyone worked out. And for folks who came in who weren't the right fit, I learned a lot from that. Like Some folks came from companies that were too big and weren't able to really roll up their sleeves. Other folks who brought in from startup environments weren't able to scale as we scaled. But I'm super happy that the team we've got and has been built over time can really handle the day-to-day operations. What I'm involved in actually is how we get paid. And that's been the the latest... sounds important to me. (laughs) Yeah. That's been the latest sort of evolution is changing the healthcare model from being paid for quantity to being paid for quality, which is something called value-based care. And it's a big part of initiatives at CMS over the past five years. And the value proposition that we bring forward is that when you bring all these services together and meet a family's whole set of needs, you actually need less care over time. You can graduate kids out of the system. You can drop down the volume of the services they're needed in terms of like hours per week or hours per month. You can get better outcomes, better member satisfaction. So how do you change payment models to get paid for value versus quantity? And that's been my my biggest focus by far for the past 18 months and it's helped us a lot. So we've now engaged multiple health plans to pay us for value versus fee for service. And it's really transformed how we can deliver care. It's enhanced our profitability. It's made our clinicians a lot more happy because they're less concerned about billable targets and more concerned about, is this child, is this family getting better? And I'll do everything I can to get them better, even if it doesn't match specifically to a billable code and changing that ethos. What's an example of an outcome? So I come from the marketing world. And for us, we look at clicks and conversions and funnels and things like that. What's an example of an outcome that a clinician might look at to say, yes, we started here and now we're here? Yeah. So behavioral regulation is one that when I started with this child, they were, say, once every four-hour session, they would do something to hurt themselves, like bang their head against the wall or hit themselves, which happens sometimes. And three months later, I've seen zero occurrences of this. Another would be eye contact. And so when I first brought this child in, you know, they, they wouldn't look at me for more than a second at a time. Or when I called their name, they wouldn't engage with me. And so 
three or six months later, being able to, to see better eye contact. And a lot of this is quantified. So we use standardized assessments to measure socialization, communication, daily living skills. Like, can they put clothes on? Can they brush their teeth? And so we're very objective and quantitative in the same way that you would be about clicks and net promoter scores and those things. So we have a lot of hard data on behaviors and and then other medical things too, like rates of seizures and gastrointestinal issues, sleep disturbances. A lot of kids have had challenges sleeping. And so we get we do instruments on what sleep has been like before they started with us and then afterwards. So we're very data rich and surprisingly quantitatively data rich. And then we can compare that data to standardized kind of reference data sets that are in the academic community. So what are typically children with autism who are getting typical care on the community, what's their trajectories like? And we can then compare ours with theirs. Where do you see this going over the next... I mean, it's it's only been, what, five, six years. It, ha- it hasn't even been that, that long since it, this has come off the ground. Where do you see this going over the next five, 10 years? Yeah. I mean, we'd like to be in every major city around the country because we we truly get calls from families all over the the country wanting our services. If we're not where they are now, they typically will either get a telehealth evaluation and then fly to us to get in-person care, or they really advocate for us to join them. And so we're about to enter our sixth state, um, Arizona, in the next few weeks. We'll be in our seventh state in Connecticut, we think, in the next few months. In each state, we go pretty deep. So like in California, we're throughout San Diego, Orange County, LA, the San Francisco Bay Area. In Texas, we're in Houston and Dallas and entering more cities. We're throughout Massachusetts now. And we just see really a universal need for it. I mean, autism is a condition that affects really equally across socioeconomic and demographic factors. Geographically, the prevalence is really the same throughout the whole country. And then we ultimately have have global ambitions too, because we're getting patients coming to us from Europe, from Asia, from Canada. And so the ability to, to expand the model globally as well, in partnership with existing groups, sometimes it's parent advocacy groups, sometimes it's hospital systems or health plans, so that we can really serve internationally. And we recognize as part of this, or you know, I, I recognize I've needed good investor partners along the way. And so you know, after a series A, end of 18, we did a, a series B about six months after that. We did a series C in mid-2021. We'll be kicking off a series D process here this year and have some uh, pretty strong interest already. Is it public um, how much you've raised or yeah? We've raised a little under a hundred million in total uh-huh. and are looking to do something in that range for our series D. But along the way, I mean what I'm really happy about is we've created value for each investor along the way, because the the market's large. I think as we've grown, the realization that this model is the right model for Austin Care has become kind of increasingly known in the community. And eventually this this goes public or this gets acquired by a hospital group or what where does this go? Yeah. Those are among the range of possibilities. There's also that we just become cash flow positive and operate as an independent private company, which would be good. And then essentially sort of rotate in investor groups so that existing investors get 
a healthy return on on their capital and the new investors come in to continue to fuel our, our, our future growth. We're seeing more and more health plans, like large health plans, want to acquire providers who can add value to their members. So that's another option beyond like a hospital group. But I've been pretty focused on just kind of... And the advice I've gotten is like, be heads down, build your business, worry a bit less about the exit pathway. In our space, if you, if you build a great company, there's so many options that emerge. Yeah. Anytime I hear entrepreneurs ask me about like, <clears throat> what's the exit, I say, if you have a cash-rich company or a company that's dominant in the space, they're going to be beating down a path to your door. So I wouldn't worry about that. I worry about building a badass company that is yeah. just irresistible to other people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's right. We've been the beneficiary of a space actually that has gotten a lot of investment. And so autism, because of really like demographic factors, it rapid rise in prevalence is very expensive to society. And so there have been north of 25 large private equity transactions in our space in the past five years, many of them, you know, in the $500 million plus range. So there's there's like no shortage of of capital that wants to make a difference in, in the space. So we talked about the zero to one and then scaling and sounds like in general you had early traction and you had patience, customers investing. So those are all phenomenal signs. Did you have any near-death experiences, any moments where you said, I'm gonna throw in the towel, like anything that really kind of had you back up against the wall? Yeah, I I really appreciate you asking that because I think sometimes in these entrepreneur stories, it's like, hey, everything was great and you know, up and to the right every single day. No, we've we've had many. I think the biggest one was the pandemic. I mean, we we were a center-based operation. We work with kids who can't really tolerate masks. And so in March of 2020, when it was like, wait a second, we actually have to look at shutting our centers down and keep everyone on payroll. That was a disastrous few months. And we had to think very, very hard about how can you how can you first maintain clinical continuity? Because for a number of these kids, they really, really need our services and we're a vital support to the family. And so how can you continue that? And then second, how do you maintain employment for for people who aren't able to generate revenue? And at that point, our staff had gotten pretty large. I think maybe about five, five hundred people or so. Uh, so and you had no virtual healthcare at that point. It was all physical. Correct. We had a very small virtual practice. It was really a center-based physical model, you know, brick and mortar model. And we had to within I, I remember this really clearly, like within two weeks, gather a clinical leadership and say, hey, we need a virtual solution for every part of the care that we deliver. The analogy I gave is like in Apollo 13, this movie where Tom Hanks is like stuck in space. This this group of engineers at NASA get handed like, hey, here's your like 45 widgets, figure out a way to like get this rocket back to Earth. And they have to like jerry-rig duct tape and all sorts of... So our task was, hey, how can you use commonly found household objects and a Zoom environment to replicate all our areas of, of healthcare? So when you're doing a physical therapy session or speech therapy session or you don't have all the tools that you typically have or in a medical environment, all the tools that you typically have. And how can you replicate a physical exam in the home? How can you prompt oh, the parents so cool. to guide you through? Can you give me an example? So what, like, give me an example of something you'd have in the home that you could actually use as in a session. In a session. Yeah, they, they'd use pillows a lot to like prop up kids and, and get them to like be lifted off the surface and do like arm movements. We did a lot of our occupational therapy sessions at the 
dinner table with various foods around the house and how to like get a fork to your mouth on physical exam we'd get a parent to find a tape measure to get a head circumference around a child's head we'd ask them to to look at us and follow our fingers with their eyes to be able to to look at gaze so a lot of things that we just were used to doing live is now translating to uh to a virtual environment and you can actually continue to do those i mean it sounds almost like you're you're inventing new clinical practices here because you can continue them post pandemic exactly yeah and i mean in, in retrospect it's an incredibly cool thing to have been through for exactly your point that now you sort of engineered a whole kind of model that you can continue to implement and the other thing that's nice is like i think we as a society are, are much more accepting of doing these things remotely you know, previously, I think pre-pandemic, just why would you do that? I'm, I'm just going to come in instead. But the tolerance to do these things virtually is good. But at the same time, though, I think there is an increasing desire to now be back and having those interactions face-to-face. So the, the pendulum has come back, but I think is in a reasonable place where, where everything is balanced. So I, w- I want to wrap up here. You obviously have this great thing going, 1,300 employees, and you've taken a part of healthcare that was, for some reason, absent and brought it into existence. What do you think one or two opportunities are today? Someone comes in, they, they want to attack this massive space of, of healthcare. Where do you see either this model being applied or some other just cool model where you would say, you know, this should really exist? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, in our space, the opportunity I, I see really is this shift of payment for for value and being able to go to the ultimate funding bodies, which are employers, governments, health plans, and saying, hey, you're paying too much for this condition in, in autism and changing incentive structure so that payments are really for outcomes, getting kids better and into school, making parents happy, member satisfaction, as opposed to the metrics that are cared about today, which is just how much are you billing? That opportunity is a really big one. It's one that we've positioned our our company for. You know, in terms of stuff that is sort of beyond our our area, I spend a lot of time in autism. And so I feel like the advancement of medications, so novel biotech compounds, but also devices, so like wearable technologies, virtual reality, there's a lot of opportunity to bring technology into neurodevelopment. I think that a lot of healthcare has focused on cancer, heart disease, autoimmune conditions, like pretty prevalent conditions where the biology has really been worked out and lots of druggable targets. I think the area that, that we're in is really in its infancy from a standpoint of like developing a whole suite of, of tools. So we're involved in the clinical study of that stuff. It's a side business that's become a bigger part of, of Cortica. We run trials for technologies that look interesting and are going through FDA approval. But that whole like developing that ecosystem of products that are, represent the best of biotech and medtech, I think that's a really cool opportunity in healthcare that's really underpenetrated. Awesome. Neil, this was great. I, I could keep going, but I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing the story. Thanks so much, John. Really appreciate the great questions and huge fan of what you're doing. Appreciate all the inspiring work you're putting out there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple or Spotify lets other folks know that you love the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right.